They were doing one of those. He was in one of those um, commune bathroom oh, places yeah, yeah. that they that you can tour now, with the hole in the slab of the marble, and um, and so he had questions. Okay, yeah, everybody's talking about the latest sports or whatever. The like mostly it's politics, right? And their servants are there. There's a fountain in the middle. There's music playing in the corner. But what do they wipe with? He was like, what? What Wasn't do they wipe with? I think they it had sticks and stuff. Yeah. Anyway, so he started talking about that. And that's what got him started down this research project. And he's just some bloke that's just, just some random guy who wanted to know more about toilet paper. Well, there's a... Uh, <laughs> so he um, did... Was it the privy keeper <clears throat> or the the groom of the stool? So in British um, nobility, there was a rank groom of the stool. And basically, you were the person who helped the king go to the toilet. And it was considered a very, very plumb position because you'd have intimate access to the king when no one else did. So people oh. would fight to get this title, groom of the stool. And... It was yeah. If you got that and you're like, guess what? I've been promoted at work. I'm I'm wiping Henry VIII's ass. That's what I'm doing now. And everyone Which is be like, funny oh. because the people that take care of the sewers are like the low of the low, mm. but yet the one that's taking care of the king's butt <laughs> is like that's the highest of the high. Pretty yeah, that's pretty funny. Hey up, I'm Joe Heathcote, and this is consistently eccentric, a podcast where I will attempt to teach a friend of mine a lesson from British history. Focusing specifically on the lesser known and less believable people and events that the history books tend to leave out. So let's get started with... This story takes place in the Georgian era. And your three words... Spintra. Spintra. Yep. Flashmolisher. What the heck? Flashmolisher. And chucking. Chucking. Like throwing something? Like chucking Things will be thrown. Things will be thrown. I can't. Okay, I can't well, give any more than that. What was the middle word again? Flashmolisher. Is that like a flash mob? Flashmolager. F- I have no idea involved. what that is. <laughs> so, prostitution in England has always been centred on London, but don't worry, as historically speaking, prostitution was a sign of progress, <laughs> as historians have noted that selling sex for money or goods didn't exist in primitive societies at all. From Europe to... Seriously. If if you go beyond um, a certain level of sophistication, prostitution crops up. So the sort of... The the indigenous peoples of Europe, Africa and Australia and the world over have managed to get along quite happily for tens of thousands of years without paying each other in goods or services for sex. Like idiots. (laughs) So, yeah, it was the dawning of the first great civilizations that brought with it the idea of women and men's bodies, because, you know, people were a lot less prude back then, uh, being a saleable (laughs) commodity. The Egyptians, Greeks and Romans all had legal and well-regulated prostitution. (laughs) Were they taxed as well? Yes, they were taxed. (laughs) That's how how you know it's civilized. (laughs) if, If you ran the equivalent of a brothel... Uh, in in Roman society, you could rise, and it was a perfectly respectable profession to have. You know, if you were a, a brothel manager, you could rise to the top of society, and people say, look, "Look at him, he's doing well for himself. Yeah. He's got many many properties that are full of people willing to give you a good time." <laughs> uh, yeah, um, 
in Rome especially, talking about the taxation, all prospective prostitutes had to register with the city um, before oh. they were able to begin trading. Uh, and like I say, owning a popular brothel, it was it was the equivalent of, I guess, owning a chain of hotels is today. You oh, know, you'll be yeah. respected. That's true. The higher the level, the better the client, not the clientele. Well, the clientele. Yeah, yeah. definitely. If you have like a Motel 6, you, you get the bottom of the of the registrar prostitute. Oh, bless you. I got you the picture thinking... in my head. <laughs> you're you're so so innocent thinking it's an indoors thing that's the lowest of the lowest. Like it's a motel. No, that's, <laughs> no. that's still pretty sophisticated for some people, unfortunately. So the um, the campsite, the campsite, um, the campgrounds, of... yes. <laughs> uh, the state park, if you will. Okay. <laughs> well, where was it? It was a it was an alleyway for Hugh Grant, wasn't it? Oh gosh, yeah, that's yeah, right. Bless him. <laughs> Which is yeah, it's like come on, Hugh, you've got the money. If you are going to solicit a prostitute, at least you know, <laughs> show, show her a good time. Yeah, right. <laughs> but it was the Romans who brought their civilization and sex work to London during the first century BCE. We know this was the case because a bronze spintra, which was a coin with a crude scene of two people having it off on it, so it yeah. it, it would show a sex act on it. It was found on the <laughs> banks of the River Thames. What position were they doing? I d- it didn't Just, say. That would be a cool picture to see the of the coin. I, I believe the... you can see um, images of spinters. This was the one that was found in Britain, but they were common. Um, historians just suspect they were used as brothel tokens. There's no confirmation of that, but it, it seems uh, possible. It seems likely because um, I think it's Pompeii where you you can still see the the crude penises that are etched into the stone pointing the way to the to the brothel so <laughs> they were very open about it it didn't what? seem like that's something a very that's so funny like this arrow to the oh my goodness yeah. like neon sign but but in stone and without the sort of stigma of, of visiting you know with prostitutes i'm guessing having a special coin for that purpose wouldn't seem out of place as it would now to be well have you brought your have you brought your prostitute token be like oh I don't really want to be walking around with it. What if I get hit by yeah. a bus and they're going through my personal belongings and they find it? Oh, that's true. The missus is doing laundry. Yeah. So, so although the Romans eventually left, the idea of prostitution stayed. And by the time the first Plantagenet king was on the throne in 1161, the Southwark district of London was well on its way to becoming a bona fide red light district. So Southwark is... Um, London was basically, it started out as a crossing point for the Thames. It was just a bridge. Uh, and London was the little village that cropped up at the top end of the bridge, the north end of the bridge, um, servicing the soldiers and giving them all the stuff they needed. And Southwark was the same thing, just on the southern side of the bridge. So it, Southwark is now part of London, but originally they were two separate sort of little, oh. little enclaves. In Parliament in 1161, it was decided that the only sensible thing to do to sort out this issue with prostitution was to put the Bishop of Winchester in charge of licensing the brothels. Oh, gosh. Yeah, because if there's anyone... he was excited about that. Yeah, if there's anyone who understands sex, it's a, a chaste bishop. Yep. <laughs> a sex-starved... <laughs> Very into the inspections. But unsurprisingly, he was up for the idea because the church no, made a lot of money as they were essentially the landlords of all carnal lust in the newly formed city of London. And sex makes money. Oh, it does. 
Though, to be fair to him, he did insist that sex could not be sold during the holidays, so that's oh, religious holidays, there's or some, uh, when Parliament uh, was in session. Because back oh. in the day, Parliament wasn't in session that often. Uh-huh. Kings were still pretty <laughs> autocratic in their rule, and they kind of call the Parliament, and then if the Parliament weren't saying what they wanted, they'd kind of send them away oh again. Oh my gosh. It was mainly to, to get them to agree to fund wars. You call a parliament with a kind of an idea in mind as a king. That's, um, I mean, you got to have some morals. <laughs> well, we'll see how moralistic you think <laughs> the, uh, the Bishop of Winchester was. So as a result of him being put in charge, prostitutes in London became known as Winchester geese. Winchester geese? Geese. Like the bird, geese. Yeah, like, okay. like a goose. Uh, in okay. honour of their connection with the bishop. Geese, in this instance, were thinking the ones with the nice, long, slender white necks. Oh, Always okay, walking okay. with their noses in the air sort of thing. It was... Um, yeah. <laughs> though, sadly... Thanks for though, that visual. <laughs> you've, got, you've got to be aloof. You're looking for the well-heeled gents, not the riffraff. Um, though, sadly, this connection to the bishop didn't mean much when it came to the hereafter as it was decreed that known prostitutes could not be buried on consecrated ground. And as a result, most were buried in the unconsecrated Crossbones Burial Ground in Southwark, London. So they had a special burial ground for people who weren't in with the Lord. Who made them money, but weren't allowed to be with the Lord. Okay, They they made money for the church hand over fist, but that, that in itself is not good enough to be allowed in. Because, yes, you're profitable, but you're also sinful. So... Yeah. yeah. Thanks uh, for thanks for your your contribution to the Lord. Now go go bury go, yourself down south. <laughs> go over there. Go. Uh, the graveyard was finally declared full in 1853, and the oh land, my gosh, the land was sold to developers. So a lot of the bodies were just moved, just oh. got rid of. Because yeah, well, not like they were special or yeah. anything. It's probably all death of syphilis or <laughs> some STDs or well, oh, I guess STIs now. Yeah. We'll we'll get into the syphilis thing because it does oh. it does play in this story a couple of times, um, but they cleared out some of the bodies. I'm guessing just so that they could put down the um, the foundations for what they yeah. were going to build there, and they decided the best thing to build there would be a fairground. Uh uh-uh. uh Seriously, oh, that's morbid. That is pretty <laughs> cool, isn't it? Right. Well, <laughs> I hope it wasn't haunted. It was too morbid for the Victorians, which is saying something because. <laughs> The local people, uh, they protested, and eventually the decision to build a, 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 an obviously haunted theme park, I mean, it's, there's not a chance it wouldn't have been, uh, it was Aww. overturned, and now it's a site covered in just commercial buildings, so like industrial complex and warehouses and stuff. Uh, though the gates, the Victorian gates, have been left in situ, and there's a plaque on it as a monument to the over 15,000 women who were oh, thought to have gosh. been buried there over the centuries. So that's a lot of bodies. It is. I mean, towards the end, it was also being used as a pauper's grave, because um, also you don't want to bury your paupers on consecrated ground, because you know you've you've spent all all no. of their lives keeping them down, saying, "Well, you'll get your reward in the next life." <laughs> well, we say that, but <laughs> you know, property in London, real estate, oh. your your body can't take up that space. That could be a pret a manger or. That's yeah. so sad. Poor, poor, poor prostitutes. Hmm. Well, the afterlife looked bleak for them, um, but there were some benefits. <laughs> I think their life on earth was probably pretty bleak. Well, no, there were some benefits to the church's involvement. 
There was a legal limit on what brothel owners could charge for prostitutes to rent a room. So you couldn't gouge um, prostitutes. Um, a ban on forced prostitution or rape, as it okay. would be better known. Um, and prostitutes had to spend an entire night with any client. Oh, um, how romantic. Well, it's to discourage a race <laughs> to the bottom in terms of pricing. So uh. that <clears throat> you'd sort of, you'd almost price out um, poorer people from getting involved in this vice because they couldn't afford to um, buy someone's company for the entire night. And then you wouldn't have the prostitutes um, trying to make more money by going, right, I'll just, you know. We'll, Do little bits here and yeah, there. We'll, we'll go for yeah. capacity. Full, if I go full capacity, I'm going to make money, more money doing it lots cheaply rather yeah. than, which is, you know, I mean, it's it's a positive in some respects. Uh, <laughs> these were actually, at the time, the most permissive rules for prostitutes in Europe, and they provided some level of protection for um, the prostitutes themselves. Because, again, if you are being paid by the night and that person is having to take you somewhere that is regulated, there's much less opportunity for you to go missing. Because I just you have... had this image while you were saying that. <laughs> Of this bishop pimp, <laughs> with his bishop pimp coming pain. out, coming coming to take care of some unruly guy <laughs> with his fur trimmed like, robes like... and his shades on. Yeah, well, he, he's coming... you know he's already had the big um, the big cross, wouldn't he? <laughs> that's really that's instead of the brass knuckles, he had the the golden cross to like knock somebody out well that's the thing his bling would have been you know (laughs) it's already there you see the bishops from back in those days they did have massive sort of jeweled crosses to really demonstrate they did have a lot of rings they did do the rings so he's he's halfway there anyway they gotta take care of his girls that's that's investment (laughs) investment in his vestments um so (laughs) with the church apparently okay with prostitution uh, most major population centres in England developed their own areas where prostitution was allowed. This is evidenced by the fact that many of the towns and cities in England would have had a street named Grope Cunt Lane. Oh. Because <laughs> subtlety apparently hadn't crossed the channel by that point. Okay, if you thought it was going to be subtle with the penises pointing the way... <laughs> um, now all of all of the examples of Grope Cunt Lane have had their names changed <laughs> over the years. But if you want to visit one, you can either go to Magpie Lane in Oxford or Opie Street in Norwich, as they both used to have that name attached to them and were both streets where prostitutes would be known to be found. And it might have been that prostitution remained tolerated and regulated in Britain to this day if it hadn't been for Christopher Bloody Columbus and his <laughs> oh, boatloads of randy sailors. Because. That Columbus. With, yeah. Within 50 <laughs> years of his voyages to America, to the Americas, syphilis was becoming a real problem in Europe. So it had, hadn't really existed um, in, in Europe until we've made contact with the Americas. Um, oh. And it was so much of a problem that the serial haver of sex, King Henry VIII himself, decided that the risks posed by brothels were too great and ordered them all shut down in 1546. Oh, wow. You would think him, he would be liking that money, like making church but into 
he's he's known for his six wives. He should also be known yeah. for his many mistresses and his children born out of wedlock. He's he's very. But he much... didn't have to pay for those, right? No. So, well, um, yeah. I believe it was was it Anne of Cleves' sister was one of his mistresses. Uh, or I think was it one Anne of Boleyn's the sisters. sisters? Was. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he had children running all over the place. So obviously, if there's this um, disease that's just indiscriminately attacking people having sex, he's going to do everything he can to to minimise his own risk. I always think of him like a little yeah. tiny... like He's like the historical <laughs> version of Boris Johnson. He didn't know how many kids he had. Um, and yeah, I don't see the appeal as well. So yeah. I, how, do, how does this person keep getting... I mean, with I guess with Henry VIII... That's why their was parliament the wasn't in session very often. He was busy Aye. with uh, his women. I, I like the, the fact... Well, I, I like the story that a lot of what happened with Henry VIII was down to the fact that he had a massive uh, injury when jousting when he was quite young. Because if you see pictures of young Henry VIII, he was like, he was a proper dish. He was like really slim, really muscular. Was, yeah. And then he had this injury and compound fracture of his leg and they believe an acquired brain injury as well. And suddenly after that, he was constantly in pain. There were mood swings. I didn't realize about the brain, the brain injury, but that mm. would, that would make a lot of sense. And that, yeah. you know, to his sort of his random sort of impulsive acts and all of the his decision making from that point on, it was like there's a marked difference between the two, the two people. You know, looking at. one of the episodes I did, he I was talked about how he was paranoid about the sweating sickness. Mm. And I wonder if paranoia was part of it. He wouldn't sleep in the same bed twice. Like he was so scared of getting that sweating sickness, which they still don't know what it was. True. It's amazing. <laughs> the English sweating sickness is just like, and loads of people died. Anyway, it's not there anymore. Came and went. It's right. like, oh, oh God, could it come back? <laughs> we do some more. Let's look into it a bit more. But anyway, he, he shut down all the brothels uh, and he labelled prostitutes as dissolute and miserable persons in the process. So they went from having a certain amount of protection, um, a certain amount of... Oh my, almost prestige in that you know the the church were supporting them to the king yeah. of england saying that they were miserable people well how did the church feel about their cash cows being taken away uh, henry the eighth and the dissolution of the monasteries i think him stopping the prostitution racket was probably the least of their worries when he was closing monasteries left right <laughs> and center and just taking their gold you know yeah <laughs> that's yeah, this, was, probably this was the icing on the cake chaos. for him. Yeah, it's just like, I'm shutting all your monasteries and you can't run brothels anymore. And the church was like, oh, can we can we just keep the brothels? You can take all the, all the stuff. <laughs> but, you know, swift, decisive action from a ruler. And that was the end of prostitution in Britain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> of course it was Legally. Legally yeah. anyway. It Yeah, it just drove the practice underground. So, well, well done, Henry. So, with that in mind, let's fast forward to 1750s and get into the actual story. All right. We're deep into the Georgian era in the 1750s, and Samuel Derrick, a Dublin man, he'd been an apprentice draper back in Dublin. And I, I didn't know what a draper was, but apparently yeah. it's it's a form of um, fitting people for clothes where you literally just kind of drape the fabric oh. on them until it kind of, and then you sew it together kind of on the body <laughs> to get a good fit. <laughs> Uh, it was oh, apparently okay. quite, it was quite skilled labour. Uh, and that's what all his family had done back home. Uh, but he I believed... I wonder if that's where the term drapes came from. 
his drapes kind of just flowy. Mm. And maybe that's what it was as a draper was fitting these people with clothing. You'd have a they draper. do that anymore. Yeah, and a tailor. Yeah, a draper. So a draper would do that. Uh, just putting it to you there and a tailor would be someone who'd take your measurements and then go away and, and make the garment and then sort of bring it back to you which is yeah I, mean, I, I kind of like imagine with clothing it. now there's like the the kind that are just made on the racks made one size fits everybody and then then they have the kind where you um they are more there's yeah, a word for it which fitted tailored to that custom to that you go for a fitting and yeah you have it you stand there in your in your undergarments and have someone prod at you. Yep. <laughs> and apparently that's that's a sign of being wealthy and ha- having means. You're going to see me naked. Um, so yeah, he didn't want to be a draper. That wasn't it. He thought he had the soul of a poet. And like lots of poets, he decided he needed to move to the big city to, to make it. Uh, so he, he moved to London to seek his fortune. Okay. And he did manage to make friends with Samuel Johnson, who was you know a noted society figure he's the guy who um wrote the dictionary famously although he was really? much more literary than that he he wrote the first dictionary of english words um but samuel johnson wasn't friends with him because he thought he was good at writing it's because everyone has to have that kind of sloppy drunk friend <laughs> who you go out on a night out with once every couple of months and it's a story you know you won't <laughs> believe what derek did this time and then you can go off and speak to your real friends. And within a few <laughs> years, within a few years, despite trying his hardest writing uh, his books of poetry, uh, Derek was reduced to translating works from uh, French and Latin into English uh, to make a few pennies. So sensibly, he switched careers to the much more stable income that can be gained as an actor in the theatre. Oh, of course. Because if he's not going to make it as a poet, he will be right. an actor. Uh, yeah, a theatre-goer of the time described Samuel Derrick's acting. Aww. Any other man might labour all of his life and at last not get into so bad a method of playing. Oh. So you couldn't even practice to be as bad as Samuel <laughs> Derrick. He was gifted. <laughs> all your life you worked so hard to, to be crap. <laughs> yeah, he was naturally Aww. anti-gifted at acting. That's, oh, that's quite the review, actually. That's... <laughs> He also tried to merge the two, his acting oh, and his no. writing, and he wrote some plays, but they were apparently also terrible. Uh, and like of those the horrible one-man plays. Yeah, <laughs> of the few that got put on, they were horribly received. So he, he tried poetry, he tried acting, he tried writing plays. Poor guy. None of it was really working out for him. Um, and despite some of his literary friends uh, occasionally slipping him some money, uh, Derek would often be reduced to sleeping in doorways in the seedier areas of London. He also had a habit of spending what little money he had on drink and the services of prostitutes. On magpailing. No. And it's likely that this these two predilections uh, are how Samuel Derek first met Jack Harris, who he, he had a job as a waiter, but he was also the self-proclaimed Pimp Master General of all England. <laughs> and that's how he introduced himself. He named himself, himself that. <laughs> in an autobiography, no less. He had it printed that he was... Well, hopefully Derek wasn't writing it. <laughs> he, got, he got it ghostwritten. So he just sat oh. with some hack writer. And you can imagine his story started, well, first thing you need to know, I am the Pimp Master General. <laughs> okay? There's no one better than me. 
his his real job was head waiter at the Shakespeare's Head Tavern in Covent Garden. Covent Garden had become the main red light district in London due to the growth of the theatre district. And even the name itself was a play on convent, as men would joke that they were going to the convent to meet with a nun as a euphemism. (laughs) As, yeah, yeah. So if you you go to Covent Garden these, you know, when you go to London next... It's a pun on a prostitute. I'm going, the I'm going to look name. for that. I do want to go to London so bad. Mm. It's on my it's on my list. I was hoping that I was going to go in the fall. Dang COVID, but that's okay. I'm going to look these. I'm going to look this up. There's yeah, you know, and you can. You I'll can feel find, like I'm in on an inside joke. You can find <laughs> the cross and bones as well, and I'll, I'll try and find um, Drury Lane as well. Was a famous red light area. So the, the the children's rhyme, do you know the Muffin Man who lives on Drury Lane? Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, that yeah. did sound familiar. Yeah. Yes. Okay. It was also a, 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 an area where prostitutes used to gather. And actually, oh. um, outside of Bedlam Hospital, going way back oh. when, that was also a um, a site where you could go to pick up a lady. Usually around in, around big hospitals are, tend to be seedy anyway. But around the, around the lunatic asylum, I mean, that's... You wouldn't think that that would be the yeah. place you'd want to go. It's not... It doesn't induce feelings of sort of lust and ardour to hear the screams yeah. of people <laughs> who are hopelessly lost in their own minds. It's like, yeah, I need, I need the desolate screams of the insane or I I can't get there. <laughs> I, can't, I can't get myself aroused yeah. about it. Need, yeah, that would be a little morbid as well. That's, to, that's a red to flag. To need that kind <laughs> of, yeah, to need those sounds. <laughs> oh. Oh, these days, of course, you can just put in some um, airpods and your partner do- doesn't really need to know that that's what you're listening to oh truly we live in a better age but not okay. not only was the prostitute um was the um red light district quite well known even though it was supposed to be illegal there was also common knowledge of different classes of prostitute and they all had fun nicknames so the lowest class and i'm assuming the cheapest prostitutes the one at the park yeah, the, the, the one six. the one who okay. would be who would not come with a room, room um, would be known as flash molishers. Ah, flash mm. molishers. Okay. Yeah. So they, those would be the ones who would um, y- you would go down Drury Lane and they would take you into a. They would flash you ten pounds, please. <laughs> behind the bins, sort of idea, you know, behind a house or down an alley, and it would be. It very much um, reading between the lines. It was very much oral sex was was what they they were proficient in. It was probably the cheapest. It was form the safest of... as well in terms of yeah. protecting themselves from STDs. And if the gentleman needed to make a, a quick getaway on a clean pair of heels, because uh, a local <laughs> uh, law enforcement agent happened into the. I mean, it didn't work yeah. for Hugh Grant in his alleyway, but you feel that. <laughs> You know. He trapped himself. That's his own fault. Yeah. You, you want an alleyway that's open both ends. That's, <laughs> right. That's what you need. Um, there were those that hung around the theatres looking for business, so waiting for people to come out at the interval uh, and offering themselves, and they were known as spells. Okay. And those that had accommodation available for more comfortable liaisons were known as boards. <laughs> okay, because you would board for the night. Yeah. Right, I guess. It's as good a reason as any. I didn't actually <laughs> find out why they were called these things, but yeah. <laughs> You were the board. I like knowing why something's called something, but I'm just going to make that up. Well, I've I've got some more words coming later on as well, so we'll we'll be able to we'll be able to speculate about those. <laughs> so, what Jack Harris did, 
is he realised that the respectable gentlemen who were coming looking for a good time might, rather than having to search themselves for a suitable lady, pay him to be introduced to someone who met their requirements if he did it in a discreet manner. Um, and the location and manner of his work made him, you know, he had the perfect um, excuse to be talking to both um, the prostitutes and to be talking to the well-heeled gents going to the theatre. Because he was the waiter. So, yeah, it was the perfect cover to have his second income as Pimp Master General. Uh, yeah. He took a cut of the money that the prostitutes were earning, in return providing them with the um, well-paying clients that, whose interests he was representing. And eventually, Jack had amassed a ledger containing the details of over 400 London prostitutes. Wow. Yeah. It's estimated... So he really was self-proclaimed. Yeah, he he had a little book that contained 400 names um, or or more. It said at least 400. Um, Wow. It's estimated that he made upwards of half a million in today's money by his illegal enterprise. Okay. How do you manage that many prostitutes without like you'd have to have you'd have to start having other employees under you it's almost like you'd have to have other pimps under you to have to man to manage or thousands well lot. he did he did refer to himself as the pimp master so he was the master of the so pimps. he was like the <laughs> he was like the string master of the other yeah. pimps okay i'm like there's no way i mean that's quite the enterprise but mm. just like in the drug world yeah you'd have your kingpin who's Sort of. Right, and you'd have to keep track of them to not take that business away either to make sure oh, those yeah, pimps to start didn't, up their own side hustles. Their, yeah. Ooh. So then you'd have to have the muscle men mm-hmm. to make sure they weren't doing So, oh my gosh, it's probably quite the enterprise. Mm-hmm. I wonder if they've had uniforms. Just <laughs> Special. Well, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I'm assuming that there would have been. That's where the purple coats and the feathers mm-hmm. came in. I bet you. I bet you it all started with this guy. He he created the pimp uniform. Well, a lot a lot of the prostitutes were uh, they'd have day jobs. This was supplementary income. It's just that the women of London were being paid less than subsistence wages for the jobs they could get at the time. So, if your partner left or if you found yourself in financial hardship, you'd be doing one thing by day and one thing by night. And um, one of the links that was made was that flower sellers during the day would often be prostitutes at night. So. That if you were uh. selling flowers or you were accused of being a flower seller, it was saying, "All oh, right, uh. well, you're you're obviously you know a, a, a lady of the night yeah. as well." Yeah, but even worse than that because that and she was probably sleeping in her cart because she was so tired from her evening, day and night. Yeah, double, <laughs> double shifts. Um, but while Jack was doing well for himself, his sometimes client Samuel Derrick had finally hit rock bottom. It was 1756, and he'd been thrown in a private debtor's prison, colloquially known, colloquially even, colloquially known. <laughs> that's a word. As a sponging house. Ah, <laughs> oh, that's funny. So he was he was in debtor's prison. Uh, it was here, and probably sober for the first time in half a decade, bless him, because they didn't provide him with booze, uh, that Samuel Derrick came up with a plan to turn his fortunes around, and all he needed was access to Jack Harris's ledger. Oh, oh, this isn't going to go well. Oh, he's not hes not aiming at the king. He's not trying to take uh, <laughs> a cut of the pimp master general. Okay. Um, instead, what he wanted to do was to produce a directory of the prostitutes in Covent Garden to be sold to the general public. What? 
yeah, like you know, a, like a, a directory of services. Yeah, like a little book. Okay. Um, and amazingly, this wasn't an original idea, <laughs> because the Wandering Whore was published in 1660. Oh my and it, gosh! It gave an indication of where brothels could be found and streets where pro- prostitutes gathered. It's commemorated today by a plaque on the corner of White Cross Street and Old Street in East London, where the amazingly named Pris Fotheringham had her brothel, <laughs> which was called the Six Windmills. Pris was described in the book to be the second best prostitute in the city, which <laughs> is a, a very backhanded compliment how, if ever I've right? <laughs> And how do you determine such a, a an award? Like how, <laughs> or I think such it, a name, how... <laughs> I don't think there were sort of parameters. Like a contest of. <laughs> yeah. I think I think it was the uh, the author's personal opinion uh, rather right. than <laughs> he gathered all of pres- all of the prospective winners together and put them through a series. It wasn't like RuPaul's Drag Race where he whittled through them week after week <laughs> after a series of challenges. It was it was just his objective Self- opinion. Yeah. Um, okay. The windmill. Do you think that's based off of like Moulin Rouge? No, um, she was very fond of Dutch sailors herself, oh. <laughs> and it was it was well. a nod to to the the sort of Dutch um, sailors who'd given her her okay. start in the in the business. That's you know where she That's started just, out. Okay. Um, but she was considered the second best, but she was the best <laughs> by far in one particular practice known as oh. chucking. Chucking, and this is this is a a practice oh. that prostitutes had apparently been employing since Roman times. So this this was um, a, a heritage skill. I'm not she'd, familiar she'd with developed. this skill. Okay, so basically what she would do a couple of times a day is she oh. would, in the sort of ante room of her brothel where the drink was being served and stuff, she would stand on her head naked with her legs oh. open for people to throw coins into oh. her vagina. I'm glad I don't know this skill. (laughs) According to reports, she could accept up to 40 shillings during a session. Wow. Which is a lot of money. And apparently she would also then, um, men would pour wine in as well. Oh, well, that's empty clean. She would insist on the finest wines because she said it stung less if you got (laughs) high quality wine. So no no cheap plonk for for, for Pris. Um, She... She died a very rich woman, and she would teach this skill to other prostitutes. So she would take um, other young ladies under her wing and teach them some skills and set them up on their own. That would Um, be a good party trick, I guess. That mm. that would be a good money-making trick, yeah. Uh, But while she died a rich woman, she also died of advanced syphilis. So it swings and roundabouts, isn't it? Yeah, that's what happens when you're second best. Well, in 1691... You know, Pris is gone by this stage, bless her. There was a new book that was published, and it was slightly longer in terms of its title. So, you ready for this? I, I'm ready. A catalogue of jilts, cracks, prostitutes, night walkers, whores, she-friends, kind <laughs> women, and others of the linen-lifting tribe, who are to be seen every <laughs> night in the cloisters in Smithfield, during the time of the fair. That's linen the title. Lifting. I love that. Okay, what what go back to the beginning of that title. What were the names? Uh Jilts. Jilts. So a jilt another name for a is it like a jilted woman? Well the, I, mean, I I don't know if, if that's where jilted woman jilt? came from, someone who's been cheated jilt. on. 
Um, Maybe not. Cracks. Cracks. You know? That's horrible. I know. I'm way before crack cocaine at this point. <laughs> <laughs> right. Can't be a crack whore if there's no yeah. crack. Yeah. yeah, that's so, maybe yeah, that's then, what that's from crack whore. The other, the others. I mean, prostitutes, nightwalkers, whores. She friends is yeah, quite friend. neutral and kind women. That's a lovely Aww, way of describing it. Is, I wonder if there was like sections and chapters. This is where you'll find the sh- the nice, the nice yeah. she women. How would yeah. you describe yourself? Oh, well, I, I find myself more of a kind woman rather than a prostitute. Thank you. Or when okay. the book came out, we're like, what? I'm in the jilts. That is all. That <laughs> well, is unacceptable. Considering the amount of categories, it only um, <laughs> it only gave details of twenty one of the women working as prostitutes in London <laughs> at the time. All of that, like the title, is longer than the amount of women. Yeah, and it would it would give um, lurid details. It was oh, when wow. I say it was it was a directory. It was more sort of erotica. So it was like little entries of these <laughs> these women. Um, I wonder if the person writing that book was like. Yeah, I'm just writing a book. I'm doing research. I'm not going to pay you, but you will end up in my book yeah. <laughs> and get 21 free uh, sessions. Yeah, he he'd seen these books, and they'd actually sold quite well. Both of them. There were you can of you can find a couple without of, much detail. <laughs> if you go on archive.org, you can find a couple of pages of um, a catalogue of jilts, cracks, prostitutes, nightwalkers, whores, she friends, <laughs> kind women. Etc. Uh, Etc. Et you can find a few pages of it too. I think have been uploaded for posterity. But Samuel Derrick, he saw that that the most they'd had is twenty-one women. There was no, no um, illustrations. No, there weren't actually. But if he could <laughs> up his game, if he could put together a catalogue of over a hundred women, it would be a bestseller. He was convinced. Be if rich. he could, yeah. Who cares about the poetry? Uh, he approached Jack Harris to explain his plan and he asked if he could have a look at his ledger and jack agreed what yeah on two conditions okay. firstly he wanted to receive a substantial cut of the proceeds well, of which course. that makes sense right. yeah if you're if you're basically a crime boss you right yeah you've got to expand your portfolio the second is a bit more weird he insisted his name was on the cover oh. so samuel yeah. derrick was going to publish it under a pseudonym yeah, he obviously wasn't going to put his name to it. And the publishers, um, there was a famous publisher of erotica in London, but he also used a pseudonym, H. Ranger. So, so Samuel Derrick... just had had a ego that he yeah. wanted out there. So everybody else is going, we'll make a lot of money out of this, but we'll have to do it anonymously, obviously. And Jack right. Harris goes, no, I want it called the Harris List. That's what I want it called. I want it quite clear, this is my list, and I've made all of this possible. Which, you know, Samuel, he was happy to agree to it. And so it was that just before Christmas, because that's when you release your best-selling books, isn't it? (laughs) To the lonely men who don't have a family. 1756, the first edition of Harris's List of Covent Garden Ladies was published. Well, that's a much better name. Mm. A bit bit more subtle. It was um, leather-bound, it was pocket-sized... And it cost a couple of shillings. So it was kind of aimed at your middle to upper class gent. Um, Things didn't immediately get better for Derek, though, as his rich aunt, the only rich member of his family back in Ireland, got wind of the book, went to London to confront him about it, knocked on his door. How did she find out about the book? If it's like, okay, never mind. I think he may have told some friends back in Ireland what he was doing and how he's making money. And one of them had decided that it'd be really funny to tell his aunt that, oh, (laughs) 
She's like, oh yes, he's he's a poet in London. No, not anymore. Uh, he's he's a got poetry. A if you mean a list of uh, horrors and jilts and cracks uh, in a book, then yeah, no, he, he referred to them as ladies. Let's be fair; he wasn't calling <laughs> them anything worse than ladies. Um, yeah, she knocked on his door. He didn't answer it. Instead, it was answered by a prostitute, uh, oh. and this scandalised her so much that she promptly left the city without having seen him. Uh, and instead sent him a short letter to inform him he was really disinherited. Oh. <laughs> like, completely disinherited. Better, better got him some money. Yeah, and to add insult to injury, um, the prostitute slash actress that he'd been lodging with, um, she left him for a richer man shortly after, oh. costing him his oh. inheritance. Oh. And arguably, despite all of that, the publishing of the list was worse for Jack Harris himself. Well, because he'd been providing a service that people needed and he was doing it quite incognito. So the authorities had been like, well, we'll just not investigate it and all the things can run and it'll be fine. But he put his name on a bloody book. So they couldn't really turn a blind eye to the pimping anymore. And he was arrested in 1758 and imprisoned in Newgate for three years. So when he came out, he continued to have input into the guide. Because it was an annual well, thing. Oh, it was? Like a phone yeah. book? Oh, yeah, okay. So after the first two came out, he was arrested for three years. And even after that, it was such a money spinner that he was straight back into helping. And despite the setbacks, the annual directory did sell well. Did he change the name at least later? No, it was no. always for its entire run known as the Harris List of Covent Garden Ladies. It's kind of too late at that point. Yeah, he's, he's not going to convince anyone it wasn't him when he's... right. He served and the time. Might as actually, well take advantage. Um, 1758, I believe, was also the year he published his autobiography about being the pimp master general of all England. So <laughs> I think he got to that stage where he felt nothing could harm him. And he was very wrong in that respect. Uh-oh. So it, it was claimed that at its height, 8,000 copies a year were sold, which is amazing wow. considering the entire population of London was only three quarters of a million at the time. That is a lot. And you can take out half of those straight away, probably. Um, and a lot of children will be in there as well. You know, when you're talking about the adult males that were living in London, that is a, a remarkable proportion to go out and buy a two shilling and sixpence book yeah. uh, listing the people. And in reality, it was more uh, a cheap erotic thrill and a joke that gentlemen might buy. You know, they'd buy the Harris Guide and they'd show their friends, ha ha ha, and they'd have a little read Without did any they intentions, have really, to go and find these Details in this women. one as well? Did, mm-hmm. it, did it have details in this one as well, like the other one? Yes. In yeah. fact, we, we can give you a few examples because um, Derek, he would sometimes write sympathetically um, and give a give a, a bit of a, a reason that that person had fallen into this line of work. Sometimes less favorably, though. Um, so we'll give some examples just to see where you feel okay. he, he okay. felt on them. So Lucy Bradley of Silver Street, Cheapside. A low, square-built lass with a good complexion, void of art. Her face is round and her features regular. Her hair is dark and her eyes hazel. She lived as a nursery maid with a foreign practitioner of uh, physic... Sorry, not psychic. A foreign (laughs) practitioner of physic near Soho who first took possession of her, not without force. So, who raped her. Um... She gets up the small linen and works well with her needle. And I can't tell if that's a euphemism or if she's a seamstress. <laughs> that's her day job? Yeah. It, well, it may be a little of both. Mm. 
She has some good sense and honest principles. Necessity first compelled her to see company, and she seems conscious of it not being right. So you you mm. feel for Lucy. Yeah. You know, he's, a, he's definitely... A, um, yeah, he's he's working his horrible poetry into the into this the lives of this this woman who came came to london to work for a famous doctor and was um used and cast aside and now finds herself in these dire straits you feel sorry for lucy yeah jenny nelson of st martin's lane slight slightly less uh information here but the (laughs) tone shifts for this one a jolly smart wench a good companion at table, <laughs> but particularly joyous in bed. There are few whores to be found so generous as she is, often restoring the money when she likes her man. But she drinks damnably, and is then too apt to be saucy. Uh-oh. Oh, dear. You know, you know, I think that sets you up for too much. Like, they're going to go, oh, she might give the money back if, if she really likes me. Or, I never like, thought of that, but that's probably a dangerous thing to put in. Because right? then if and she then, doesn't give you the money back... It's, she didn't like you. Yeah. Or yeah, or the jolly part. Like, you'd have to always be on your game. Always oh, have to be jolly. Sour. Right? Well, like, can I just have one night where I'm just not all jolly? I'll give you, I'll give you the <laughs> third one, which it kind of oscillates between the two, this one. Okay. I can't tell whether he's Maybe being they're kind just written by different cruel. people. I bet you Derek didn't write all of these. The original ones, apparently he did. But we'll find out what happens to Derek and what happens to the guide. And one of them ends before the other. Oh, and so... Um, <laughs> the last one, Miss L. We don't get her full name. Of number 12, Castle Street, Oxford Market. This lovely fountain of transport is 19 years old. Her stature tall, but quite genteel. Her eyes are of a beautiful slow black and beam a torrent of delight at every potent glance. A sweet Aww. breath and good teeth, her breasts are in the fullest proportion and will rebound with the more grateful <laughs> ardour to the hand's soft pressure. Her yielding limbs, though beautiful when together, are still more ravishing when separated. Her temper is affable and complacent. An air of gaiety and tenderness breathe round her. So we're starting off really as positive as you can get, really. It's a five-star yeah. review. Right. Then he shifts a little bit. Unfortunately for this girl, she has received no education. She possesses none of those happy talents which improve and heighten so much amorous delights. Her face, however good, is destitute of expression. Her manner, rather vulgar, which marks her out as a low original. Oh. So, things didn't end well with that session well i bet it started off well (laughs) it starts off well there's a lot of bad in the middle and then he ends by saying half a guinea is the price of admission for any of our readers to enter such premises as will not cause a moment's regret so it seems that on reflection he feels that she's worth half a guinea which is who needs an expression while you're (laughs) it's the it's the you know if you took out that middle bit you'd be like oh my wow yeah. You you must have really liked this particular lady. And then that middle bit just, hmm. Okay. You're right. It doesn't quite mesh together very no. well. It's like the slap in the face. But amazingly for, for Derek, with these, you know, these schizophrenic descriptions of people that jump between things, these bipolar descriptions, um, the guide <laughs> did make his fortune and allowed him to enter the upper classes. He landed a job as master of ceremonies in Bath, which is a, another famous old city, wow. um, 
which came with an annual salary equivalent to over £90,000 today, or over $100,000. But, I'll tell you, (laughs) you can take the drunk out of the brothels... (laughs) But you're not gonna you're not gonna stop him being who he is. The higher you go, uh, and staying true to himself, Samuel spent it all, all of his newfound Aww. wealth on his vices, and he died penniless in 1769 at only 45 years old. That's so sad. It is. He he'd done what he needed to do to get out. I don't feel so sorry for him though, because he was making the money on the backs of other women, mm. and and for nothing for nothing. I mean. He was helping them with advertising, although the advertising was weird <laughs> in some respects. I don't feel sorry for him. In a certain way, it, it, it didn't make things better because it's kind of, um, because the book was so popular, it kind of shone a light on the red light districts and it, it brought to the surface the, the unspoken secret that there was prostitution on a, an industrial scale going on in London. And actually, as the first guides were published, there was a crackdown on brothels, on prostitutes. So, effectively, what he'd done was uh, make lives objectively worse for them. Because, you know, things like yeah. The Wandering Whore talked about, I think it was six prostitutes. And it was, oh, well, it's written in a kind of, um, more of a, a, a folk tale kind of style. It was some yeah. prostitutes talking amongst themselves. It was written as a conversation. Whereas this is just literally, this is the person. This is where they live. This is... You know, sometimes yeah. what, what they will do, you know, this is the list of And if of you services. didn't want to be in that book, I wonder if... No, you, you didn't get a choice on that. Right. So you'd have to keep moving every year as this, <laughs> as it well, would come out. You could. Uh, yeah. Find new clientele every year. Change your hair color. Um, right. No, that's change not me. your demeanor. Was... Change your face. Change your... Well, that's difficult if you can't form expressions <laughs> on your face. You're, you're always going to have the same face. Draw then. them in. You just draw them in. <laughs> The guide, though, will continue to be published beyond Samuel Derrick's death with other anonymous authors um, publishing for another 30 years until, in 1795, publisher John Roach was sued for liable by the Proclamation Society Against Vice and Immorality. (laughs) So the the PC Brigade came. uh, We're we're heading towards the more puritanical times. It's funny that it's a libel. It's a libel suit. Mm-hmm. I think it was um, they managed to find one of the women named uh, and convinced her that they would support her um, if she basically disavowed it and said that this man has published all of this stuff about me. Yeah. I don't do and have never done any of those things. Um, and I want compensation against my good name. Yeah. Because, or... yeah, the mood had shifted. Um, uh, and within another 30 years, uh, the phrase common prostitutes would... Um, come into being as a crime basically so they introduced more criminal sanctions against the prostitutes rather than against the brothel owners the pimps the the church that had originally sanctified this the the kings who had said oh well we best you know best keep that going because it's a good money spinner so yeah and the common prostitute if you were found guilty of that for a first offense sentenced to a month of hard labor which I think okay. is misunderstanding how difficult a job <laughs> that woman is is doing already. Right, that's like a vacation. <laughs> yeah, and amazingly, the more rigid enforcement of laws against prostitution, it didn't end prostitution. It just drove the practice even further underground, and 
whereas the Georgians, um, there were women in high society who started as prostitutes who became, you know, sort of famous for the fact that they were escorts and would be yeah. celebrated as celebrities and emulated. It reminds me of that show Harlots. Mm. That was based that around sh- this time, this time I period. Think, yeah, I, th- I think so. And they even had one that was for men. Of course, that one was even more underground. Oh, God, they, yes. They they showed that in, in that show. I stopped watching it because it got a little yeah, and crazy. Not only did they sort of force them further underground, but because it became a moral issue then, um, people were using terms like godless, worthless, um, mm. you know, really painting these, let's face it, more than likely working class women um, who were being paid below subsistence wages in any other job they wanted to do yeah. um, and had no safety net at this point. So, you know, if you... if you... And it's really ironic that they started off under the church wing mm. and now they're godless. Well, yeah. To be honest, at least by this point, the hypocrisy has gone from the church. So they're not using them for money and then also saying, well, you can't be buried on consecrated ground. They've gone all in. But the moralizing and the sort of um, painting of these people as it being uh, a choice to be sinful and thus being worth less, it really created the environment that allowed for the atrocities of Jack the Ripper and our good friend, Thomas Neil Cream uh, to, to happen. Ooh. And even to this very day, the idea of um, serial killers uh, going after prostitutes um, because they're not missed, because people don't care. A lot yeah. of the big serial killers of the 70s and 80s, they kill prostitutes because they knew they'd get away with it. Yeah, nobody because, cares. Yeah, it's like, well... No one's going to go looking for them. There's a, Or there's... no one's going to report them because... Um, they're scared. There was a documentary on the Yorkshire Ripper, um, Sutcliffe, uh, and it, it had this interview from a police officer at the time that was, it was so revealing in that his his choice of attack was, or that the way they figured it was that he was, um, uh, he was a missionary killer and that his idea was he wanted to kill only prostitutes. Um, and that's, he, he was on a moralistic crusade to get rid of prostitutes. So when he killed someone who wasn't a prostitute, they came on TV and basically tried to talk to him directly and said, look, we've all understood what you've been doing up until this point, but now you've killed an innocent woman. And it was the fact that he he used that exact term. Now you've killed someone who was innocent, as if all of those prostitutes he killed to that point. You know, it's almost the way he... Like, now you've crossed the line. The way he worded it, it was like, yeah, that was all a bit of fun. But now, (laughs) come on. That's sick. Yeah. yeah. Come on, Peter. This this person hadn't yet, you know, fallen on hard times. That's... This person had maybe had a better upbringing. Oh. So there you go. That is kind of a potted history of prostitution in England, but it's the story <laughs> of um, Samuel Derrick, Jack Harris, and the Harris Guide, which for, I think, 40 years, between 40 and 50 years, was an annual uh, mainstay of London. It's really interesting. I was looking, I I actually have a book in my queue of the history of prostitution mm. by William Sanger that I have not read yet that I want to read very, I have, I have a lot of <laughs> the brief history of oral sex. Oh, um, I have a book called sex and punishment. Um, this one's called rape and sexual power in early America. 
I have one called um, The Sexual History of London. Ah, the, the Harris guy will definitely feature in that. 